You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Isaac Mitchell. I come from Bullet Lick Baptist Church just down the road. Um, it was a joy to be here for the first service, and now I see more people and uh, more gray and white hair. So it is uh, a little bit of pressure to have so much wisdom out there and uh, young me preaching to you. But uh, the Lord has given his word to the young and to the old, and he's given authority in his word to the preacher. And so I pray that what I am able to preach this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit is uplifting to the old seasoned Christian and effective to the salvation of the lost soul. The words to which I'd like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 18. This might make some of you older Christians happy. I'm preaching from the King James Version. Uh, But if you have the ESV, you'll be able to follow along. Jeremiah 31, 18. We read this. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us a word that cuts to the heart, creates wounds that are seemingly unfixable. But in your word, you have given us the gospel. And I pray that this morning, I would effectively, through your word, make Christians uncomfortable to the point where they grieve in a right, godly way. And that those who do not yet know you and you do not know them, I pray that they would turn to you by your grace. Amen. Usually when I prepare a sermon, especially at churches that I'm not familiar with, I'll just preach on whatever I've been studying. And my wife and I have been reading through the Bible, and we're in Leviticus and Numbers. And I think in a short time, it was hard to turn around a sermon about sacrifices and and offerings. And so I went to my Matthew Henry commentary, something that I've cherished. And maybe some of you all have read Matthew Henry in your uh, studies. I went to Genesis 1, which is the only book I've read all the way through from Matthew Henry. And when I went to Genesis 1, preparing to start turning through the pages of notes that I've made, I looked to the left of Genesis 1 which you should know there is nothing to the left of Genesis 1, but in this book, it was Matthew Henry's biography. And I looked at the note, just a paragraph about his death, and it goes something like this. Matthew Henry, a great preacher and expositor and commentator of the word from uh, the late 1600s and early 1700s, on June 21st, 1714, was making his way to a church where he was to preach a sermon. And it was noted that he was not feeling particularly well anyway. But on the way there, his horse stepped in a hole and he was thrown from his horse into a mud puddle. So he got up and kind of cleaned himself a little bit and thought nothing of it. It's just a little mud. It won't stop me from preaching, 
even though people recommended he not preach that day. Well, he went and preached, and people noted that Matthew Henry was not his lively self. Matthew Henry was dying. We don't know if it was from something before the fall or if it was uh, the horse knocking him off that led to his death. And we don't even know if the story's true. I read it in a book. Or I read it on the internet, so it must be true, right? Well, after his sermon, he was taken to a house where some people were taking care of him. And Matthew Henry, uh, as he was bleeding out, that was some medical strategy that they partook of back then. Um, he realized he was dying. And he called one of his friends to him and said, Friend, you are known to take note of people's dying words, so these are mine. And Matthew Henry said something like this, A life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. The most pleasant, the most comfortable life that anyone can live in this world is when that person serves God and lives in communion with Him. Now, the important part of this story, yes, are Matthew Henry's final words, but I didn't tell you what the passage was for Matthew Henry's final sermon. It was Jeremiah 31, 18. And I thought to myself, if this is the last sermon that I ever preach, if I don't make it home today, would I be content with this being my final sermon? And for some of you, if the Lord calls you home before you return to church, whenever your next service is, is this a good final sermon to hear? It's an uncomfortable sermon. I have to admit that my goal is to step on some toes. It is my goal that Christians, you would grieve today. There are passages in the Holy Scriptures that both create gaping wounds, but also supply the remedy for that wound. Look in Genesis 3. You see the fall of man, perhaps the darkest chapter in all of Scripture. How can you read that with a smile on your face? We read of man in a perfect estate falling from the estate wherein he was created by sinning against God. Death, sin enters the world. But there's a sentence of hope in the condemnation of man at the fall. And it's this, that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. You see, we've read the New Testament. We know what that means. We know that Christ would come and die on the cross and Satan raises his hands in victory. But three days later, the stone is rolled away. My wife and I were reading through Genesis. And this doesn't happen very often. But a section of verses actually caused me to cry just by hearing it read. I've been told I am a crier. But it was surprising to me to have cried in just a a Bible reading with my wife. And it was the passage of Rachel dying in childbirth. Now, the, the death was sad, of course, but, you know, break, breaks my heart to read, and perhaps some of you read it and your heart breaks. But at the same time, I'm able to see my wife and how she desires to be a mother. And how even if the last thing she ever does, the last thing Rachel did was name her son. To say, I love you, 
I have suffered for you, and I want you to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We look in the New Testament, and we read of Jesus praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood and anguish because of the bitter cup that he would partake of. And we read of Jesus suffering on the cross. How can you read that with a smile on your face? It's perhaps the most disgusting scene in the Bible. But, but in three days, Christ defeated death. There are passages of Scripture that cause us to feel uncomfortable so that we may be brought to repentance, unto righteousness, and unto joy. Because though we may cry in the night, joy comes in the morning. And the verse that I'm calling you to consider today is a verse that I am calling you Christians, whether you've lived 95 years or 5 years as a Christian, I'm calling you to grieve. A godly grief that produces repentance as we read in the second epistle to the Corinthians. Today I want you to see that we ought to grieve because of a very present reason. And that is sin. I also want you to see that there is instruction for the one who grieves. And that is to pray. And I want you to see the grace of God in effectually turning the lost soul. Look with me in Jeremiah 31, 18, at just the first section of that verse. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, or grieving. We have reason to grieve, Christian. I know that diamonds are valuable, because when I went to the jeweler to buy one for my wife, I saw the price tag on it. It was evident, these are valuable stones. But I see that sin has a hefty price associated with it because of the wrath of God that was cast on His own Son. Christians, we have reason to grieve when we look at the cross in light of our current sin. Let me take you there. We see a man hanging on a tree with nails in each hand. Nails driven through with a hammer. We see his feet crossed, a nail going through both. We see a spear in his side. Pulled out, blood and water flowing. We see his face beaten, scratched, perhaps teeth broken. We see his back ripped to shreds. We see spit on our Savior. We see bare patches on his head where hair has been ripped out. And his beard where it has been torn. And we see a crown of thorns that someone crafted so that it would fit his head in a way that it could just be stabbed in. And we see that man with a dry mouth, hardly able to produce any words. He tries to gaze towards heaven as he does to direct some words. Some of those words are, Father, forgive them. But his eyes aren't strong enough, and they fall. And where they fall, he sees his mother watching the suffering. The suffering of an innocent man, a perfect man. 
Now, that is a description that you've heard probably hundreds of times in your life. And perhaps you sit unmoved now as you hear it again. But Christian, your reason to grieve lies in the fact that every nail that was driven, every second of suffering even before the cross, the drops of blood that he sweat, that was to cover your sin. Not just sin overarching term, I mean sins, the sins that you have committed, the sins that you are currently committing, and the sins that you will commit. And I ask you to grieve in this way. If you are cognizant of your sin before the lie falls off the tip of your tongue, before laziness sets in, before lustful thoughts lead to lustful actions, before anger turns to malice and ill-wishing, know that that lie is as if you held up a nail to Christ's hand and drove it yourself. Know that that lust is as if you took the spear with both hands and drove it into his side. I could go on berating you this morning, making you feel uncomfortable. But I ask you, do you see this man hanging on a tree? Cursed is the man who is hanged on a tree. Christian, it is you who put him there. And for that reason, we are to grieve our sin. Now I want to speak to the lost souls. You say, that wasn't, wasn't me. I'm not a Christian. He hasn't paid for my sins. What reason do I have to grieve for my sin? Well, your reason is quite striking. And it takes us back to Genesis. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant with him. A covenant of life. Upon the condition of perfect Obedience. God forbidden man to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did, there would be pain and death as a consequence. And you know the story. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell by sinning, by eating of the forbidden fruit. Adam is a representative head for all of us who have been born by ordinary generation. That just means if you were born by biological conception. All of us this morning, being born that way, are born with Adam as our representative. And so when God sees man in his original sin, he sees the condition that Adam fell into. We are part of that. You are part of that. Unless you have been saved. The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. All mankind by their fall. Here's, here's the bad part of this fall. Lost communion with God. Are under his wrath and curse. And are made liable to all miseries in this life. To death itself and to the pains of hell forever. If you are a lost soul this morning, you must recognize that you are standing in opposition to the one who spoke everything into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth without form, and it was void. And God took that chaos and made order. 
If you are not a Christian this morning, you are standing in opposition to the God who laid the foundations of the earth and knows the birthing patterns of mountain goats. The God who controls the reproduction of cells in your body and causes hair to grow and fingernails to grow and breaths to be taken. You are standing in opposition to the God who knows how much time you have left on this earth and how many inhales and exhales you have left. That is not a God you want to stand in opposition to. And if you have a correct understanding, lost soul, of what I'm saying, then you will recognize this. I'm in bad shape. God is real. I have ascertained and apprehended that God is real. And I'm standing against Him. I've sinned so much in the past, I can't cover up those sins. I'm sinning now and I can't stop. And I know that I'm going to sin in the future. I can't stop it. And I know that because this God is real, and because He rewards those who obey Him and Punishes those who do not obey him or know him. I'm getting punished when I die. And I know that once I die, there is no comfort for me. There is no bridging the gap between where a lost person goes and Abraham's bosom. I'm in bad shape, should say the lost soul. And Christian and lost person, if you've understood what I've said so far, We have an ever-present reason to grieve. But God. But God. Perhaps the most comforting words of Scripture. If you have been cut to the heart, if your toes have been stepped on, but God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace with them and would bring them out of the estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation by what? By a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an ever-present reason to grief, but we have a glorious reason to hope and find joy. If I've made you feel uncomfortable this morning, good. If you expected this young preacher to step into the pulpit and deliver a heartwarming sermon that would make you leave smiling and you'd shake his hand as you walked out, thank you for coming to our church. We hope to see you soon. I hope you can still do that because of the hope that I'm about to share with you and the joy that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me again at verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. I just spoke to you about the bemoaning, the grieving. But I skipped over the most comforting part of these whole verse, of the whole verse. I have surely heard. That is the Lord. As Micah says, my God will hear me. The God who created the ear has perfect hearing especially for his children's cries. Parents, grandparents in the room, you know that if your child or if your grandchild cries, you can pick out that cry. You know what they need based on the tone of their cry. They're hungry. They're scared. They want comfort. And you run to give it to them. 
That's what the Lord does for his children. He hears our cry like David in Psalm 32 or in Psalm 51. He hears them and he comforts them. I would invite you to turn to Psalm uh, 51, please. I didn't do this for the first service, but I think it's, it's good for us to read and a good reminder of how you should grieve. Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David after Nathan the prophet came up to him and told him the story of the, the ewe lamb that was stolen and, and all of that. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are this wretched man. And David is grieving after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, again I'm reading from the King James and I'll, I'll read through it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall slew forth thy praise. Show forth, show forth thy praise, I'm sorry. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. I take you to Psalm 51 and unapologetically read through the whole thing because I have found that in seasons of grief over sin in my life, there has not been a better guide for prayer in all of Scripture. There's not been better guidance from any person that I look up to as a mentor, a spiritual mentor. There's no sermon I've listened to that has taught me how to pray out of grief like Psalm 51 has. 
And if you're grieving this morning because of your sin, pray like David has prayed. Now, I want to encourage you this morning to pray. But as we know, God has a perfect plan. God is sovereign. God knows what is best with us, best for us, and will answer all of our prayers with either a yes, a no, or a not now, as you have heard. So why should we pray if the answer is already determined? I have a couple of reasons for you. Number one, God has commanded us to pray. God has commanded us to pray. We read in the New Testament, when you pray, pray like this, says Jesus. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. And on that same note, not only is prayer commanded, it is exemplified. As we read in the Psalms. As we read in Paul's letters. And as we read from Jesus himself. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so on, you know the prayer. Because it's commanded and because it's exemplified, we ought to pray. Another reason we ought to pray is that God is glorified by our prayers. God is glorified when his attributes are made known. And when we submit ourselves to God and say, God, these are my supplications. These are my petitions. We're putting us beneath him. And we're saying, you are mighty. You are strong. You are the great physician. In you do we trust. And we are making it known that God is a God who hears. It's one of his uh, attributes and abilities as God is perfect hearing. And perhaps the most important reason, if you could rank these in order of importance, is that prayer does not change God. It doesn't necessarily change circumstances. Prayer changes you. It's like if you're in a boat that's in the water. I've heard this illustration presented in a number of ways. It's like you're a boat in the water and you throw a rope to shore and it ties onto a tree or a rock. When you pull that rope, you're not pulling the land to you. You're pulling yourself to the land. The foundation is strong and immovable. And prayer is like you throwing that rope and pulling on it. God doesn't change. You change. And you learn to pray as you grow as a Christian. I used this illustration in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. The reason I don't play basketball is because I am terrible at basketball. My shooting percentage is incredibly low. I miss most of the shots that I take. Some of you have prayed to the point where you think, the Lord is not hearing me. He keeps answering me with a no, or he's silent. Well, I would be discouraged from praying as well if the Lord never answered me. But Jesus has taught us to pray this key phrase, Thy will be done. And when you offer up your petitions with the overarching desire of God's will being done, you will pray with a 100% success rate. And you will not be discouraged from offering up prayers to the God who hears. So I urge you for those reasons, because we are commanded, because it is exemplified, because God is glorified, 
because he's allowed us to pray, and because prayer changes us, we have to pray. I don't think I spoke on one of those. God has allowed us to pray. This is really important to note, that even though we sin, and there is a great chasm between us and God as we sang this morning, God listens to our cries. He said, come to me, you who are burdened. Come and lay your burden down before me. Ask of me. Seek. Knock. And what good father would give a bad gift to his son who asks for a good gift? We ought to pray. But some of you will say this morning, I've never prayed, and I don't know what to pray. I am very ignorant in this regard. I'm too broken to pray. Well, I encourage you to offer up an ignorant, broken prayer. Because the Lord does not despise a broken and a contrite heart that is open before Him. You may say something to the effect of, God, I don't know what I need. I don't know what to do. But God, I know I need You. So turn me, O Lord, that I may be turned. Pray. I want to make a couple of notes about the middle section of this ser- uh, middle section of this verse, even though it's not the main thrust of my sermon this morning. Look where it says, "Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke." A couple of things about discipline. I, I do think that the Lord uses the rod to discipline His children, with the desired effect of bringing them unto repentance. And righteousness. And it is effective. We need to be as Christians discerning with how the Lord might be disciplining us. Uh, my wife and I in the series of a month or a year and a half or maybe two years something like that. We were involved in three car accidents. Two of them pretty significant accidents where I was happy to have survived. Uh, one of them was the week after our wedding. Great start. And upon thinking about it, we, were, we asked, is the Lord disciplining us? Is there something we're not seeing that we're doing? And uh, while we don't have perfect discernment for why the Lord does things, it has caused us to be more careful with our lives and more reliant upon God for protection. And so I know for me, whenever I get in the truck to go to work in the morning, I pray, Lord, please help me to get to work safely. And please, Lord, just make people behind me pay attention. So that they don't hit me. So in one regard, this discipline, if you will, has caused us to be more reliant upon God. And maybe you can have a similar analysis of your life. And say, I might be being disciplined. This health uh, issue that I'm dealing with might be disciplined. Let me assess my life for sins. Chastisement from the Lord is, is effective. But as Ephraim is bemoaning himself here or grieving, he says, I've been chastised. Lord, I know you're disciplining me, but I just can't change. I cannot change. Like a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. The more you beat that bull that's misbehaving, the young bull as it's in the ESV, the more he kicks. As Spurgeon says, the more you scrub a dirt floor with soap and water, the muddier it gets. I've got kind of an uncomfortable illustration 
that my wife and I were dealing with this morning, our dog keeps going to the litter box for a snack. And uh, we put up a gate with a little cat door on it. He can fit through the cat door. We've changed the size of the hole of the cat door, and he just goes right through it. I hesitate to say we beat that dog, but I spank the dog when he goes to eat the, uh, the matter. And uh, what do I do? I beat him? Why would you go eat something that's so disgusting? Why would you return to that? Especially if you're being chastised. He's like a, like a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. So about five minutes before my sermon this morning, I saw a future vet that we know that's um, going to school to be a vet eventually. I said, how do I get this dog to stop going to the litter box for a snack? I've tried spanking it. We've tried putting up a barrier, and he just keeps finding a way to, I'll say sin, right? And she says, this blew my mind. You can put something in the cat's, the cat's food that will prevent the dog from eating the when the cat, you know, when the food exits the body, okay. <clears throat> and I thought, in the middle of last service, that's a great illustration. There is something internal that has to change our desires. Something within us has to be changed, and it's not something that we can change ourselves. I'm going to have to come up with a better illustration for future uses, but it fits. It works, right? And so in the middle here, chastisements may be effective, but eventually those chastisements have got to make you say, Lord, I cannot change myself. Despite your chastisements, turn thou me that I shall be turned. So that brings me to a conclusion of this sermon as we look at the last section of this verse. Turn thou me and I shall with certainty, be turned. Notice the petition that's being raised up here. Lord, you do the work to turn me. And I know with certainty I will be turned. I think what he's referring to here is repentance. If you're reading the ESV, it says the word restore. So he's referring to uh, a Christian being brought back from having backslidden away from the Lord. Let me give you the catechism definition of repentance. And I'll make some comments as we go through it. Repentance unto faith is a saving grace. It's a saving grace. And so when we say to repent, you might think, oh, that's something that I must do. Rather, it is a work that's being done. It's a work of God. And it's a gracious gift. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. Think about what's occurring here. A sinner realizes his sin and realizes the mercy of God and effectually, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, is turned from his sin unto God. A merciful, gracious God. But that's not all. Yes, he's turned from it unto God. Here's, here's the important part. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Once the Christian has repented, there is a new trajectory for his or her life. 
says, I'm not running back to the vomit like a dog. I'm not running back to the, the evil master like a slave. I'm free. And because of my hatred of the condition that I was in, because of the grief that I was suffered, because of the chastisement, I run unto thee because thou hast turned me. And there's a new obedience. Now the Christian is not enslaved to sin. Though he's still affected by it, he desires to obey God and His commandments. If you are backslidden, Christian, and you recognize it, I pray that you would leave here today with a grief in your heart. And you would say, I've sinned against a holy God. And I remember, I remember what was accomplished on the cross. I see the man hanging on a tree. And when we sing old, the old rugged cross, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. For t'was on that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. When I hear Alan Jackson sing that song, it often causes me to smile as I sing along and you know, tap my foot, harmonize a little bit. It's a fun song. But I think that there's a danger in that we forget the ugliness of the cross. The wrath of God propitiated by the sacrifice of a perfect man to cover your sins. So that one day, for some of you it may be soon, for some of you it may even be today, if the blood of Jesus has washed you whiter than snow and you stand before the judgment seat, God says, this man, this woman who has sinned, this woman who experienced great grief, turned not to worldliness, but turned to my son. And now I see my son in this man. I see my son in this woman. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter today into your rest. Some of you this morning are probably wondering, what can I do to be saved? What must I do? Is there a prayer I must pray? Is there an invitation I must answer? Is there a walk? Should I jump in the baptismal right now? No. God says in Isaiah, look unto me. Look unto me and you shall be saved. This morning, lost soul, would you pray? Lord, I'm looking. Turn thou me. And I shall be saved. And I just want to make note really quickly on this last section of the verse. For thou art the Lord my God. Speaking of the Lord of the Holy Scriptures... Can you say, like Micah, that is my God? Or can you only say, that is a God? Because if you can say, that is my God, my comfort and my joy to pronounce to you Christians this morning is that God hears you. That God hears your grief. Grieve to Him. Be brought back. Be restored. Eschew Hate, run away from evil, 
unto righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the Lord, our God, your word cuts, but your word heals. And as you have revealed to us through Ephraim's bemoaning, a people that was your people that had ventured so far away in sins of idolatry, wrong sacrifices, sexual immorality. We are a people here today who have not done or who have done something that is not so different from that of the Israelite nation. And you have offered us a hope in the fact that you are a God who hears. You are a God who saves. You are a God who turns. Lord, let this people at First Baptist Church, Mount Washington, this little flock, let us be a people that hates sin and runs to you. Turn us, O Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.